Um, to my defense, I did not respond immediately. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, it seemed immediate to him. To me, it was uh, it was honestly a rustle. Um, um, why? Well, I was kind of relishing the time off, to be honest, right? Selfishly, I was. I was kind of relishing the, the time away and um, not teaching and, and so on. So, um, honestly, it was, a, it was a wrestle, to be completely honest. But, but I, um, and it has actually been a wrestle in some ways, kind of working through the message. Because um, um, immediately I started to think about, okay, do I go back to Galatians? Do we, because I know Donnie had finished off Galatians and um, I hadn't had a chance to, to listen to the December 22nd. Uh, we were away, actually. We left on the 22nd. Um, uh, to go away, and uh, so I hadn't had a chance to listen to it yet, so I was kind of wrestling, okay, do I do that? What do I do? And um, one of the things that, that, that I recognize is, um, and I don't know, I kind of feel it, and I kind of sense it, that there's kind of a spirit of heaviness. Am I the only one that feels that? Maybe? Sorry, I don't mean to be... <laughs> But um, but it, it feels it kind of feels that way this year for for some reason, and um, and so I was I was kind of working through that in my in my own in my own life and saying okay what 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 brings that on what is it what is a part of it? Um, uh, Twenty nineteen for many of us was a challenging year. There's lots of things to think about. Lots of things happened. Um, things in our lives, circumstances, and situations. Some were joys as, as Steph was talking about. But some were real challenges, right? Some were struggles that we've gone through, and we've all kind of wrestled through that. And, and so I was, you know, kind of reflecting on that as well in my own life and, and thinking about it. And um, so I'll just start off where, where I started writing. And um, I can't speak for you, but occasionally I go through seasons of doubt. Um, days and even weeks of meh, as the kids say, meh. Right? <laughs> doesn't sound so good for me, but uh, you get what I mean. Um, I, it's not complete unbelief, um, but either due to sin or circumstances, maybe the weather, laziness, lack of discipline, spiritual warfare, it's a season of malaise, kind of an uncertainty. Uh, meh. Right? And even against my better judgment, when I go through this, it's weird, but I tend to look for assurance from, from others. I look to assurance from family, from friends, from work, from sports, from activities, from talents, from stuff. <sighs> Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, right? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I, I, and obviously, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. As I was going through this, as I was wor- wrestling through this, as I was thinking, what, what is it that, that's occurring in me right now? And how can I bring a word of encouragement, a word of hope for people, for you today? It's the beginning of the new year, and many people reflect on the previous years and resolve to do better next year. They draft resolutions, as it were. Um, I resolve to eat better, uh, take better care of myself, spend more time with family, do something to improve, influence, or help the future. Right? Um, a lot of us make res- resolutions. I heard on the radio someone say that they were resolving to be the best version of themselves in 2020, <laughs> which got me thinking, 
how would you know when you became the best version of yourself? Right? So that's the cynical side of me. But uh, like, <laughs> right? how would you know? Um, somewhere else I heard, I'm going to be true to myself. Cynical voice in me retorted, um, yeah, you're lying. Um, so <laughs> those things don't always come out of my mouth, but, <laughs> but they do. They sit in my head. Sometimes my kids hear them, actually, Melissa. Um, in our prevailing real, uh, relativistic and pragmatic culture, we're immersed and we're swimming in this. We're busily working on ourselves without an objective measure. We ourselves become that measure. Like that statement, I'm going to become the best version of myself in 2020. What does that look like, right? What's the objective measure? It's really subjective. I heard another quote. It's actually from Elsa from Walt Disney's Frozen. I haven't seen this, but when I came across it, it really struck me as as an interesting, so yeah, I haven't seen it. So, so for those of you who have watched it and know it, uh, but, it but it kind of reflected exactly that pragmatic culture. Elsa from Walt, Walt Disney sings, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Wow. That's telling in a lot of ways. That's what's, what struck me. I haven't seen the movie, so I haven't, <laughs> I'm not enculturated to it. I don't have grandkids or my own children that haven't watched it. But, but when I read that, I thought, wow, is that, is that the prevailing culture? kind of is. And, and I get stuck into it as well, sucked into it. Rather than connecting with some positive source outside of ourselves, and that could be family, people, God, we connect with something within us. We kind of create our own way. So as I reflect on 2019 and I think to 2020, I realize that most of our resolutions are about hope, aren't they? I hope that 2020 is better than 2019. Had a conversation with a friend this morning who said, yeah, I was hoping that 2019 would be done but some of the stuff from 2019 is carrying on into 2020, right? And, and so on. In many ways, the resolutions are our pragmatic way to secure a hope. And if we do the right things and discipline myself to accomplish them, the outcome is a more positive future. So my wrestle is not too dissimilar with the struggles that Donnie was talking about in the Galatians when he taught us in, in Galatians 3, 2 to 3. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit and are now perfected by the flesh? <laughs> are you working at this by your own efforts? So when I'm thinking in the flesh, when I'm thinking in the flesh, like the Galatians, I'm not dissimilar to Elsa or to the Galatians or to those radio hosts that I heard. I'm hoping on myself and my particular efforts. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to put resolutions. Don't get me wrong there, right? I'm not saying it's wrong for those resolutions. But it becomes wrong when we put our hopes in those things, when we put our hope and our faith in those things, right? That something will happen and be better than it currently is. 
all these resolutions are actually fleeting and temporary. So, like the preacher, um, like Solomon, I began to reflect on what does the Bible actually say about hope, right? Because I, I kind of, I'm pretty sure what the world says about hope. What does the Bible actually say about hope? Like, what is, how is it defined? So, it actually defines it in three different ways. Um, First, it is def defined as a desire for something good in the future. So the Bible does use that phraseology, the same kind of ideas that we, that we talk about. So here, let me just put, let's personify this a little bit. I hope, this is my hope, I, I just spent quite a bit of time with my son, Marin, and um, I really appreciate him as a young man, and he challenges me in all the time in my faith and who I am and being a dad and so on in really positive ways. Um, but I hope that when Marin graduates with his degree, that he can use his God-given skills, gifts, and education to serve people, contribute to the kingdom, and provide for himself. So that's my hope. So like, that's not a bad hope. It's a, it's a positive hope for him. So, um, and the Bible does use that phraseology as hopes in the future. So what is something good that you desire in your future? You don't have to say it out loud, but... <laughs> What is something that, what is a resolve that you've had, a resolution? The second way that the Bible uses it is uh, the thing, a thing, or the thing in the future that we desire. So we desire something in the future. So it's not just a hope for something in the future, but it's a desire for something in the future. And what are some of those things? Well, I hope to be a grandfather someday, right? So that's another one. I hope that that happens, right? Um, so I hope to be a grandfather. So what is something that you desire for, the f for your future, right? You hope for this, you hope for that. Scripture also uses, um, also uses it in a different way. And, and I recognized the first two as I was reading through Scripture because it's, it's easy to, to, to put into place. It's easy to provide a, a metaphor, a, a frame, a phrase, a statement, a thought in regards to it. Um, but I was wondering why I was experiencing a malaise. And um, I was listening to, uh, through my drives and so on, um, I've been listening to the Old Testament uh, throughout the year. And Psalm 42.5 struck me, actually. And I, I remembered it as I was thinking about hope because it refers to this exactly. And it kind of reflects where, I, where I've been at. And it says, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for salvation. So, I began to think about that hope. Is that hope just wishful thinking? Sure hope. God's good. Sure hope. You know what I mean? Like, do I hope that it's going to be better in the future than it is today? Is that the hope that the psalmist is referring to? No, I, I think if you really reflect on it, it's a deeper hope than that, isn't it? Sorry? It's betting it all, right? Glad you stopped there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the third definition of hope is actually a lasting and secure definition. It's the reason for thinking that our desires may indeed be fulfilled. 
Scripture indicates that the biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather the biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something. Confident expectation. Not just wishful thinking. <laughs> I, sure, I sure hope 2020 is better than 2019 or whatever. So when I was thinking of hope, naturally one of the places that, that I thought of was Hebrews and the promises of hope that are documented in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is one of my, uh, one of my favorite books. I, I really enjoy reading through Hebrews, and, and um, uh, I've had a chance to speak on Hebrews a couple times here. And um, so I'll give you some background, some context to, to the book of Hebrews. And many of you probably know this already, but it'll help to, to frame things for today. The writer of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish, to Jewish Christians and encouraging them to look and see that Jesus is actually the author of all things and actually is the reason for our hope. As Donnie prayed earlier, it is, he is the reason for our hope. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the writer of Hebrews uses the Old Testament imagery throughout the entire book. He uses Old Testament imagery and Old Testament history to make his arguments and illustrate points for the readers that Jesus is indeed prophet, priest, Savior, and King. The use of hope in Hebrews isn't wishful thinking, but rather statements of certainty based upon the character and promises of God. So the hope isn't just wishful thinking, it's certainty. That was encouraging for me. As I'm preaching, my malaise is lifting, <laughs> even now, because I'm beginning to think about the hope that is set before us, not wishful thinking. Hebrews 6, 13 to 20 is, is the largest portion of Scripture that we'll be going through, and it really sets the frame for all of this. So the author says, uh, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all the disputes, an oath, is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So let's look at how the author argues his point in Hebrews. First off is 
God is unchangeable and trustworthy, doesn't lie. The author states that God is both unchangeable, and I'm going to use the word true, he's true in this. So when God desired to show more convincing to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold on to the hope set before us. The Greek word for God there is theos, uh, theos, and he's making a point that there are two, un- there are two things that, don't cha- that, that are unchangeable. First, the unchangeable character of his purpose in verse 17. So he's saying in verse 17, it's kind of written odd when you read it. It's the way it's written, it's sort of, usually when you read something, it's like these two unchangeable things, one and two. But it's actually written, uh, the first one is his unchangeable purpose, and the second is that it's impossible for God to lie. So the unchangeable character, his unchangeable character, and the fact that he doesn't lie is the argument that he's making. So let me unpack that a little bit more. Just as God is unchangeable in his character, and it's impossible for him to lie, in Abraham's day, God reminds us that in, tw- in 42 generations after, that by extension, he's the same today. So he was this way in Abraham's day. He's saying that now in this generation, so if you look at, uh, we'll read that in a second, but about 42 generations later, he's the same. So if you could trust, if Abraham could trust him, he's making the argument, you, Hebrews, today, you too can trust him. He hasn't changed, right? He hasn't changed and he doesn't lie. So if that's the case, you have no worries. And what was, the ho- what was that? That was, was the promises, the hope that we have. Uh, when, I was in, when I was attending the University of Winnipeg back in the early 80s, um, the only course that I've ever failed in higher education, um, and there's been a lot of it, um, was Jesus of Nazareth. It was a course that I took at the University of Winnipeg on the Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I was already a Christian. And that's still in my transcript. That's the course I failed. <laughs> Don't look at my transcript. Because um, <laughs> there's a couple of others that were close, but that was the one that I failed. was Jesus of Nazareth. And I, I was shocked by it. And why? Well, certainly it was a university course, so it was hard. Um, but I'd been a Christian for a number of years, and I'd done a lot of study and reading on, on Christ and who Jesus was and the Bible and so on. So, anyways, this is the reason. The professor that I had was quite a liberal theologian who believed and taught that God was an angry, warmongering, righteous, and vindictive God in the Old Testament. But that he changed and became a God of grace and love and peace and mercy in the New Testament. So obviously... (laughs) When I was challenging those things, like, no, God's the same beginning to end. <laughs> I failed the course, which is maybe a good thing, right? <laughs> in the end of my transcript, that, yeah, I was all right. So we, we came at odds at that because I said, no, I don't, I don't think he is, I, you know, and so on. And honestly, at that, at that point in life, I wasn't all that confident in my faith, but I was pretty sure that God didn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, even if my professor agreed that that was the case or taught that that was the case. 
So it's obvious that the author of Hebrews is saying that God is unchanging and he isn't lying. He's the same um, today, forever, and, and has always been. So that's the first argument that he's making. The second is that God is a promise-keeping God. So as an unchanging and truth-telling God, when he makes a promise, he keeps it. Yeah. That's amazing, right? So he doesn't change. He tells the truth. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. So that's, the, that's again, the argument that, that, that the author is making here for, for, the, for the Hebrews there. When I make a promise... Um, either through circumstances or sinful nature, I don't always keep them, right? I, I was feeling that actually on Thursday. I wasn't going to keep my promise, Donnie. <laughs> Thursday, when I was working through this, like, I'm not sure I'm going to, uh, can I, how can I get out of this? Um, sorry, being human here. Um, <laughs> it was, like, because I, I was really wrestling with this. I was wrestling, okay, how can I, how can I teach when I don't feel this myself, and that's, that's the challenge, right? There's the challenge, right? I don't necessarily feel this, and, and Jim was talking about uh, um, fiducia and ascensus this morning, right? I'm using the Latin term. <laughs> yeah, but you, what? Yeah. Yes, fiducia, right? That, that solid trust, right? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's not what I meant. That's what I meant. But, it, but, but <laughs> I only know it from someone else, that's why. So God made an, made an oath to ensure that the promises based upon himself were by those two unchangeable things. That he doesn't change and he doesn't lie. So he said to Abraham, these are the, all these promises that I'm going to share with you are based upon the fact that I don't change and I don't lie. You have hope. Right? You have hope. Because in and of myself, I'm going to change my desires. I may put out resolutions to say, this year I am going to get in shape, lose weight, whatever. Right? Am I going to be able to follow through on it all the time? Maybe not. Right? It's not a bad thing to do, don't get me wrong, but let's not put our hope and our trust in those things. So naturally, the readers of Hebrews would recognize and agree that God was a promise-keeping God because they, as Jews, saw themselves as descendants of Abraham and as heirs. It may not be as obvious to us, but to them the argument made perfect sense. God was indeed true to his character and kept an oath and the promise that he made to Abraham. They themselves, these many generations later, are the continuation and the consummation of that promise, the covenant made to Abraham. So the fact that they were Hebrews meant that he was faithful to Abraham and fulfilled that. Does that make sense? So there was so many generations later. Um, so 
To them, it was obvious. To us, it may not be quite as obvious because we don't have the same context or the same history. But he's writing it to say, I, God made this promise to Abraham. We are the part of that culmination of that promise today, continuing on. Obviously, if God wasn't faithful, there wouldn't have been a Hebrews. Right? <laughs> Sorry. Just using logic there. If God wasn't faithful to Abraham, then there wouldn't have been a continuation of Abraham's family and so on. And there wouldn't be Jews beyond that day, time, and so on. So what was the actual promise that God made to Abraham? So then I started thinking about it. Okay, well, it's great that I'm reading about this and learning about this and kind of making the connections between his faithfulness and the f- his unchangeability and the fact that he doesn't lie. Um, and he made this promise to Abram. Um, what was that promise? What was that covenant that he, that he made? Well, we have to go back to Genesis 17 for that. I'll read 17, uh, 1 to 8. Uh, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to, appeared to Abram and said to him, Almighty God, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So there's basically three promises here that that God made to Abraham at that time. One, I will be your God. Two, I will bless or cause you to prosper you and make many nations from you. And I will give you an everlasting possession. So the writer is encouraging the readers of Hebrews that God is faithful to Abraham throughout his lifetime. Abraham didn't live to see the magnitude and scope of all these covenant promises. He died shortly after that. But he still trusted God at his word. And this is is accounted to him as faith. He was convinced that God would indeed fulfill his promises. And in this is described hope. So hope is something set before us. It's the future objective reality that we hope for. It's a certainty, not wishful thinking or wishful desire. The example of Abraham serves as the evidence of that hope. Looking forward, Abraham couldn't see David. Uh, He couldn't see the deportation of Israel to Babylon. He couldn't see Christ. But to the readers of Hebrews, they knew the history and God's meta-narrative. In Matthew 1, 17, um, I just finished reading this a few days ago. I'm reading through the New Testament again this year, and I just read this a few days ago, and it, and it kind of, it really fits. So uh, Matthew 17, uh, 1, 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, 
And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So Abraham didn't see all those other generations, that 42 other generations that came beyond him or past him. But he still had hope that God would be faithful in his purposes and his plans. And from him came nations and and kings, some good kings, some not so good kings. (laughs) But ultimately, the king, Christ, came from him, which is the ultimate culmination of it. So, how, can, how, how sure can we be that this is hope? The author of Hebrews uses another metaphor to illustrate his point. So, as if the points haven't been solid enough to say that <laughs> I don't change, God doesn't change, and God doesn't lie, and he keeps his promises, the author goes and, and gives us one more metaphor, another metaphor to help solidify the, the context and the frame. How How safe is our hope? How secure is our hope? The author of Hebrews uses the metaphor of an anchor to illustrate his point. He equates an anchor with that hope. So, um, who of you are boat people? Probably lots of you are boat people. Okay, boat people. Okay, this is a question for the boat people. Well, not necessarily, but it could be anybody. But um, what's the purpose of an anchor? Keep it from drifting, keep it in place, hold fast. Okay. Do you have 100% assurance that your anchor will hold? (laughs) Well, that was really quick. (laughs) Why? Lots of reasons, yeah. So let me ask you another question. Would you set one anchor and then go to sleep on your boat? I'm not a boat person, so I don't know. Wouldn't be wise? Yes, maybe, right? Depends, right? Sorry? Yes. (laughs) So he uses the metaphor of the anchor. And and so, yeah, the anchor is intended to hold hold fast and to keep things from drifting and moving and so on which is a great metaphor in, in so many ways. But, but as the author of Hebrews unpacks a little bit more, um, he, he makes this anchor a lot more safe than the anchor that we might use in our boat. And how does he describe it? He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Okay. This I wrestled with, right? But knowing a little bit about history through reading the Old Testament over the years and so on, I began to kind of piece it together. And and this is some of what I've come up with. Sure and steadfast. Well, sure and steadfast, not just sure, not just steadfast, but steadfast and sure. (laughs) So what does that mean? This hope that we have is an anchor of our soul. In other words, what anchors our soul is not our subjective confidence, but a sure objective reality that God has promised. This is our anchor. This is what we are to lay hold of. 
not our subjective confidence, but the sure objective reality that God has promised. So we go back, God has promised to Abraham that he doesn't change and he is the same and he'll provide these promises. He's also saying, and using the metaphor, that this anchor is the anchor that God has provided. Won't change, and he doesn't lie. So we have a hope. The image here is that the anchor is firmly attached to the heavenly altar behind the Holy of Holies. The other end is attached firmly to my soul. Again, the Hebrew readers would Get the imagery. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make atonement for the sins of the people, the children of Abraham. The high priest would go into the temple and then go behind the veil, separating the Holy of Holies from the tabernacle. The high priest would then take blood and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat of the ark. The author is saying that Christ has gone before us into this Holy of Holies, this inner place behind the curtain, And he has made the perfect atonement. And in a sense, he has anchored our soul, sure, steadfast to that promise. That's our hope. So no matter the storm, the wind, the tribulations, the anchor of my soul is secure. It's great that we sang that song. We won't be shaken. That's what I was thinking about when we were singing that, is that the storms are going to come our way. Things are going to happen. 2019 wasn't all that great from a subjective perspective, right? But I'm not going to be shaken. Right? I won't be shaken this next year, God willing, right? If in Christ I recognize the hope that he has set before me. This is why the author can say in the second part of of 18 that we might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Hold fast. Honestly, I don't think the hold fast is actually my action as an affect, but rather an effect or a proof of that hope. So the fact that there's a holding fast isn't about me holding fast onto the rope. It's about the anchor being attached to my soul and attached to the heavenlies through and by Christ. John Piper helped me to understand this and to kind of put it together. Um, Holding fast to the rope anchored in heaven is an effect and a proof of belonging to Christ not a cause of it. Colossians 1 supports that as well. Colossians 1 indicates that those who are in Christ have this new hope and glory. To them, God chose to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mercy, mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not about me feebly holding on to the rope that's anchored in heaven. But the image is, is that through Christ, we are being held fast. The anchor of the soul is secure. The anchor secures my soul to heaven and heaven to my soul. 
Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. And Paul to the Romans says that it's God, it is God of hope by the power of the Holy Spirit that I'm bound in hope. So the holding fast of the anchor is a result, not a proof or a cause. So what does this mean to me? Although I'm not physically in heaven yet, my soul is anchored in heaven. And that is a sure and certain and objective hope, whether I feel it or not. And I guess in all, for all intents and purposes, I'm already in heaven. <laughs> but more than that, there's an additional promise found in Hebrews um, to add to the promises that God made to Abraham. So he made three promises to Abraham, but there's a third one in Hebrews as well. This additional promise is through the mediatorial work of Christ. As the forerunner, Christ has passed through the veil, and he is the only perfect high priest that could secure the new and lasting covenant. Hebrews 9.15, Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the fourth promise is the promised eternal inheritance. The promises God made to Abraham are mine, are ours in Christ and through the work of Christ. But we also have this additional one. So I will be your God. I will bless and cause you to prosper and, and make nations from you. I will give you an everlasting possession. And the fourth one is, I will receive the promised eternal inheritance. Peter affirms this inheritance in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And as Peter states, this hope is a living hope. And as I see it, it's a current hope, not just a future assurance. So in light of these truths, what is my response? What is my response? Well, Psalm 42.5, again, I'm going back there. Why are you downcast, though, my soul? And why are you in turmoil? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. So in light of these truths, what's my response? Hope in God. Don't hope in my resolution. <laughs> Don't ho hope in circumstances, but hope in God. The second one is joyfulness and, and peacefulness. Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings that about. I'm reminded that God is God, is the God of hope, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can abound in hope. This brings joy and peace. Three, confidence. Even though trials and sufferings, and even my own sinful and wavering heart, in Christ, I have hope, and as such, I can rejoice in suffering 
because he is indeed faithful. Romans 5, 2 to 5, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering precedes endurance, produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. So even through trials and suffering and my own wavering and sinful heart, I have hope and confidence in Christ and what he has indeed done. Four, I'm expectant. Um, Not only are the saints hopeful, but all creation is expectant of the future hope. All things will become new. New heaven, new earth, all. Romans 8, 19 to 21. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 1 Peter 3, 13. But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heaven and new earth which is in which righteousness dwells. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, and 19, 17 and 19. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. Oh, soul, why do I... <laughs> we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would further be clothed. So that is why this mortal wave will be swallowed up in, by my life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God through Christ, reconciling us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. So I'm expectant that these things will come about. Thankful. God is reminding me through the spirit of wisdom and revelation and in his word to know more about the hope with which I've been called. I'm reminded of the glorious inheritance that he has secured for the saints in Christ. Ephesians 1, 17 and 19. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowing him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritances in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? All of this reminds me that if anyone does ask about the hope that is in me, I think I'm a little bit better prepared. I've honestly been preaching to myself about hope, and I'm reminded of the hope and for 2020 and beyond I can say, along with the psalmist, why are you downcast, O my soul? 
Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Father God, um, thank you that you are unchanging, that you are the same today as you were in the past and as you will be in all eternity future. Thank you that you don't lie as well. You are truthful. Thank you for the example of Abram, who hoped in you and hoped in the promises, even though he didn't see all of the promises. And thank you that I can look back, that we can look back and see how you have been faithful. Through all scripture, how you've been faithful. And then we have a hope that because you have promised these things, that although we don't see it today and we may not necessarily sense it today or feel it, that we have an assurity, we have a certainty that you will fulfill your promises as you did with Abraham. You will do the same for us in the future. And that's where my hope is. So when my, when my heart is downcast, when... I look at the waves and I see the turmoil around me. Help me to hope in you. Help me to hope in you, God. Help us to hope in you. So as we go into 2020 and beyond, you shall tarry. Remind us of that hope. Remind us that it is, that our hope is in you. Thank you, Jesus, for being the atonement. Thank you that you are the great high priest who has actually shed his blood. You sprinkled it on the altar for the remission of our sins. And as we go into communion today, what an amazing picture. You shed your blood. Your body was broken. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And thank you that we can share in communion together as a reminder of that. Reminder of the work that you've done, perfect, complete. And that is our hope. Our hope isn't in the things that we see. I'm reminded of that song. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So as we go into communion today, as a family, as a body, Help us to remember what you've done, how you have done it, and who we are in you because of that work. Thank you for the hope. Pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.